0: Amen, amen. Feel free to have a seat. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today, verses 17 through 20. And so if you have a Bible, you have an app on your phone, begin to make your way, turn your way, tap your way there. Matthew 5, 17 through 20 this morning. I mean, let me reiterate what has already been said as far as kids go. Some of you have your kids in here for the first time, and so you have been sweating since you walked in. Others of you, that's just what you do. You just sweat a lot. And so we're going to forgive you both, okay? And so there are going to be some kids sitting somewhere near you. They're going to make some noise at some point in the service, and your temptation is going to be distracted. Try and do what you can to, to keep that to a minimum. Your distraction, not the kids. We can't control that. And so we think it is good. think it is vital that they be in here with us, that they see what it looks like for mom and dad, for the stranger sitting on the row uh, beside them, to lean in, to study, to try and stay awake, to pay attention. You can point out where different books of the Bible are found, and you're showing them, you're modeling for them what it looks like to study God's Word and to do that with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we think that is a, just a sweet and sometimes frustrating uh, thing for us to go through, but it is so good for them and it's good for us too. Hey, let me pray for us once again. Would you bow your hearts and heads and eyes with me? Now we count it all joy that we get to be here to study your Word together. Uh, that we get to do this uh, being dry, being safe. And Father, we pray that you would be especially close to those who are in South Texas, who are in the Houston area. Uh, some of those, they've lost homes, they've lost businesses. We see that some have lost their lives. We pray that you would be especially close to those families, you know, that you would be with those uh, emergency responders, that you would keep them safe. Uh, sometimes when they're even in the midst of going to reach out to people who have made unwise decisions to venture out. So God, we pray for their safety I pray for the many churches in the Houston area that are unable to meet today because of flooding and that their people would be found worshiping at home and that their people would be found ministering in their neighborhoods, praying and, and showing what it looks like for the church to be salt and light in a, in a community that so desperately needs it. And so, God, we pray your blessings, your care and provision upon the churches of South and Southeast Texas who are even now just continuing to, to endure and suffer from uh, rain. Father, I pray for the churches of our community. We just continue to pray that we would see revival break out in Greenville, Texas, and, and that through a people seeking to live righteously, that their whole lives, that every facet of their interior and exterior lives would be Holy, beholden unto you, that they would submit themselves to you, that they would honor you in their thought lives, and their actions, and their businesses, and their comings and goings. And God, that we would see strong churches in our community, churches that desire to work together for the good of this community, that together, corporately, that we might be salt and light and an encouragement to one another. Father, we thank you that you give us this text before us this morning, and just I pray that you would open our minds to the difficult nature of it, that you would help us to understand, and that past understanding you would help us to apply, that your Holy Spirit would be at work mightily and rich in our hearts, that we would recognize those times and occasions where we seek to push back, and that we would be humbled, and that we would humble ourselves. So, Father, I pray uh, for the hearts and minds in this room, that they would be one to you, submit themselves to you, and I pray for for my heart and the work that you have done on me this week, just beating me up in some sense with this text, showing me my inadequacy, showing me my failures, and welcoming me into your warm embrace. God, I pray that that we would experience that corporately this morning, a body of believers so desperately in need of a Savior and a relationship with him we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. That's right. That is a long prayer. Heard that. And so when there's not a ton of background noise I hear really well, that's the kind of distraction. Not a big deal. And so, but it is funny and you should laugh at that. Okay? You think that's long. You should see us at Easter. Man, I want you to look at something. This is a paper Bible. And so, and, and it's, it's helpful for, for, for this, okay? Now I want you to look, this is the Old Testament side and this is the New Testament side. And so when you can see, I mean, just physically, it looks more imposing. There's a lot more content on this side of it than on this side. Now if you're gonna take just kind of number of books or 66 books total, there are 39 books on this side, 27 on this side. But if you're gonna take it and look at it, just kind of number of pages, then you're gonna have about 70, 75% of the content on the Old Testament side and then the remainder on the New Testament side, giving you an understanding and just a real quick visible demonstration that there is a lot of content in the Old Testament. But most of us, we have kind of relegated the Old Testament to kind of character studies. And so we're like, man, I want my kids to be like David, whatever that means. And so you want them to have all the good stuff of David. And so you just focus on that. Or you're feeling down, and kind of down in the dumps, and so you go to Psalms, and you read through that. You need some wisdom, so you go to Proverbs. You park there, and you go through that. Or we just kind of intersperse, uh, as far as sermons go, man, I need an illustration. So we dig into the Old Testament, we read a bit of its context, and we throw it as an illustration. And that's kind of what we do for the Old Testament. The difficulty, though, is the Old Testament representing you know, 70 75% of the Bible. And then we come to texts like 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul's writing, and he says all of Scripture. And so he's talking about the Old Testament. And he says it's good, it's valuable. And it's good, and it's valuable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so we recognize we need it. We recognize it's good for us. But, but how do we understand it? And what the heck do we do with it? Well, Jesus gives us a picture of it, in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, of really how to apply, how to understand the Old Testament. And you can understand why this is important, because when Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of chapter five, he begins to teach in such a way that nobody's really heard and nobody's been able to experience before. So he goes through and he's describing all of these various interiors that should be true of us and in our lives. And so we call those the Beatitudes. And so there's eight or nine of them, depending on how you count them. And so people are hearing this and they're just, whoo! They're devastated. What category do I put this in? How am I to understand this in light of the the 70% of content which has preceded your teaching? And so he's trying to explain how to understand all the things in the past in light of what he's saying currently in the future. Now, the text that we're going to look at in 17 through 20 sits in the middle of these two things. And so we have all of the interiors of the Beatitudes. We make it through those interiors. We get to Matthew 5, 13 through 16. It says, okay, then now go do something. Go be salt. Go be light on the basis of this is what you look like internally. And so we're out and we're doing that. And then we're reminded, oh, my goodness, yeah, there's an Old Testament. Yeah, there's all these scriptures that I'm supposed to pay attention to. Well, what, do I, what do I do with those, Jesus. So Jesus has in Matthew 5, 21 through 48, kind of this fancy word, a new hermeneutic or a new way of understanding, a new way of studying the Old Testament. And so he's bringing this to bear. And so before he gets there, he doesn't want them to run into any misconception that he's saying, oh, let's just take the Old Testament, cut it out of our Bibles and set it over there and just have nothing to do with it. Recognize this is heresy and this is certainly not what Jesus is advocating. So let me read 17 through 20 and then we'll walk through it a verse at a time. So he summarizes here, in verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus sets forward this incredibly difficult teaching. Let's begin to look through this a section at a time. He begins with the strongest possible language available to him. And he says, do not even consider, do not let it enter your minds that I have come to abolish the law. Now, this word abolish kind of gives us a a kind of a twin understanding. One way of understanding of this is just saying, okay, I'm going to take this, and I'm going to set it to the side, and we're going to look at it, and we're going to say, oh, this is really beautiful, this is really nice, but it has absolutely no bearing in my life. And so that's one way of understanding it. The other way of understanding is to say, I'm just going to take this, and I'm going to break this in half, and I'm going to judoplex it out into the hallway, and now it's going to have nothing to do with it. So the one seeks to kind of venerate it, but it has no application. The other one seems to kind of remove it, do damage to it, and have nothing to do with it, both ending in the same application, but the approach to them being decidedly different. So Jesus tells them in no uncertain terms, I have not come to remove this. Now, most of you in your understanding of what he's talking about there, we focus in on that first word, right? Where he says, I've not come to abolish the law, but recognize he's pairing it with something. He pairs it with this idea that I've not come to abolish the law, nor have I come to abolish the prophets. And so what's he doing there? What Jesus is doing there is saying, look, you have this entire rich tradition of understanding. You have this entire rich uh, series of scriptures that have been handed down to you. And both of those things combined, I have not come to abolish. I have not come to do away with. And so for the first century here reading this, they're not just saying, oh, okay, what Jesus is telling us is that the 10 commandments still apply. He's not come to abolish them. He's not come to abolish the Levitical code. Those things still apply. You see what Jesus is talking about, he looks at it and he looks at their whole entire sweep of history. And so he's telling them in essence, kind of in our parlance, he says from Genesis all the way through the books you have now, those things are still on you. I've not come to set those things aside. I've not come to dismiss the covenant relationship that you've had from God, from Moses to today. I've not come to set those things aside. And so he says, the entirety of your Old Testament still has application. But what is its application? So he's not come to set it aside. He's not gonna judo chop it and kick it in the hall. But instead he says, I have not come to abolish, but he contrasts it, he says, but to fulfill them. And this is important. What Jesus is communicating there is that see, he is somehow personally involved in the scriptures. One of the things you'll notice if you're kind of reading through Matthew up into this point is that all the way through the Beatitudes, it was kind of those, those, those. And so there are those out there. And then at some point he switches to the second person. And he begins to hit them. And he said, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness. Now here he turns again and he begins to apply them to himself. So Jesus isn't writing and telling them that you have come to fulfill them or that you are somehow bringing this magic piece into the puzzle, but he describes them in terms of what he is doing. Now, I want you to understand something. And in the entirety of the Old Testament, Jesus looks at it and says, this is all about me. It's all about me. It's all testifying to me. It's all pointing towards me. And it is all fulfilled in me. So imagine they've heard other teachers get up and explain and teach the old Testament and teach the scriptures. And it's just, they're kind of, okay, we get this. You're saying this, you're saying, this is what it means. And this is what we do. Jesus gets up and it's a decidedly different teaching. He said, because you've read all this, you've understood all this and everything in there is about me. And everything you read in there, I have come to fulfill, to bring to fruition in a decidedly different way, and no one was ever able to do this. Now, this word fulfill has been one of Matthew's favorite words and will continue to be one of Matthew's favorite words over the course of his gospel, using it a full 16 times. And we recognize that a dozen of the times that he uses it, he's talking about prophecy, He's talking about some unique way that it was written in the Old Testament And Jesus is standing in this place in history saying this thing was written over here and this is how I'm fulfilling this. This is how what you read and what you waited for is finding its culmination, its realization in me and it's doing that right now. And so you can imagine as one having superior ability to speak with utmost authority saying everything you've read and been raised in, it's all about me, right? Would this call you to listen to him? Well, still he calls us to listen to him today, not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, look what he says of the stringency of this. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, two or three things in this. Some of you have the King James and you miss the jot and tittle language, and I understand that. Those are just hilarious words. Why would you not miss those? And so what he's talking about in this, he says it's an iota and it's a dot. And so what he does is he takes the smallest letter in the Greek uh, alphabet, which is the equivalent of one of the smallest, most insignificant letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And this is iota, or this is in the Hebrew, the yod. And he says, this thing will last. This thing will endure. And then he goes to the other side. He goes to this, this idea of the dot. And so this is really just kind of a flourish on the side of a letter. So somebody's writing these things, and they're giving it a flourish so that you know and you're able to tell one letter from another. This is what he's saying. These things will endure. Now, Jesus is not offering commentary on scribal transmission. This is not what he's doing. Jesus is not saying, look, got a lot of idiots out there, and they're copying this text, but even these idiots, I'm going to guide their hand. He's not... He's not Warding off poor penmanship and confusion for the Bible. Not saying, look, they want to draw a different letter, but like I've got their hand and they're just like, oh. And Jesus is like, you will write a yod. And they're like, no, I'm not. You will write. So he's not talking about that. That's ridiculous. Why would you ever think that? We have kids in the room. Please control yourself. In essence, what he's saying is the authority vested in Scripture will always find application. The authority vested in Scripture will not diminish. It will continue. And what he says here is, it's until heaven and earth pass away. And there are a couple of different ways of thinking about this, but I think what Jesus is talking about, in essence, isn't just that these things are gonna last in perpetuity forever and ever and ever. But Because if you read Revelation, if you read through the Gospels, if you read all the way through the New Testament, you know that God has this recreative effect where he's remaking heaven, where he's remaking earth. And so what he's telling us is, until Jesus comes back and ultimately declares his victory, this will remain. This is the enduring quality and testament of God's authority vested in his word, which was true for them and is true for us today. So he says none of these things are going to pass away. The smallest element of the text The most thing that we would look at and say, this is completely insignificant. This is a complete waste of time. He says, no, even this thing, my power and authority is holding and keeping and applying to your heart even today. So he says, it's going to stay there until when? Until all is accomplished. And of course, he's talking about there, his own return. So verse 19. So we know all of this. It's good It's authoritative. We have to adhere to it. We have to listen to it. It's not going anywhere. Even though culture is going to change, even though people are going to become more highbrow, more illumined, more erudite in their expression, they're going to be a bunch of smarty pants running around telling us all the ways that we're backwards. Right? This is what he's saying, and just a really easy way to understand it. Even though these things may come to pass, his word endures. His word endures. And on the basis of this, there's this incredible therefore. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, essentially, because these things are true and they're going to last forever, if you go out and you relax one of these requirements, so you go out and you say, look, God doesn't really care how you live, He doesn't really care how you spend your money, He doesn't really care what you do. He's just really interested in you finding your inner happiness and peace and coming to church occasionally, let's say once a quarter, and giving a tenth of 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 a a a fifth of a percent. Occasionally, when you're not busy or have other things to spend the money on. God's just really, he just really doesn't care. He's not involved in those details. If you believe. If you take some aspect, some attribute of God's word, and you say, this thing is an offense to me, this thing is an affront to me, because it violates my own personal freedoms, my own personal execution of all those things that I want to do by my own volition, by my own choosing. Like, I don't know what that is for you this morning. Maybe you sit here in this room, and there is something that you know you've encountered in scripture to be wrong with the way that you're living your life. And you look at that and you say, look, God doesn't really care about that. I'm not killing anyone yet. I haven't haven't stolen anything yet. And, you know, I just kind of be however I want to be. God is really just kind of concerned with these overarching themes, kind of this overarching tenor of my life and how everybody sees me. That's what he says. If this is the way you view his word, you're called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And you say, all right, but look, I, Matt, I don't get up and teach anyone. I don't instruct anyone. Man, let me just tell you, if you're a parent, like you teach 24-7. The things my kids accidentally learn at my tutelage, at my instruction, man, I wish I could go in selectively and be like, look, don't do that. Daddy was wrong. Mommy was right. Daddy was wrong. Mommy was right. Strike it from your mind. Don't act like that. what happens? Man, I raise my voice. I say something I shouldn't have. I go to my kids and and, and Valerie and I practice this. We say, man, daddy was wrong. You shouldn't have said this. You shouldn't have acted this way. He was wrong. Two weeks later though, my kids are learning this behavior. So they get over there and they're just like, and I'm like, you can't do that. And in their minds, they're thinking daddy was wrong, but it felt so good to be wrong. (laughs) Right? So by, by virtue of my actions, I'm teaching my kids to move in the same vein. And the only way we overcome that is continually going to them being like, buddy, daddy was wrong and his heart is broken for his behavior. Not this flippant idea that says, man, I can do whatever I want to do. I can be however I want to be. And God is just completely okay with it. We are teaching people. We are training people how we view righteousness. We're training our kids. We're training our neighbors. We're training our co-laborers. We are training our employees. We are teaching lost people how to read and understand scripture and how to understand our God on the basis of what we say, on the basis of what we think, and on the basis of what we do. Can I tell you this? That if the people you work with and the people that see you out in community know that you are a Christian and you are doing something to violate God's word, then what you're doing isn't telling them, my God is full of grace and he loves you and that's okay. You're telling them, join me in irreligious pursuit because my God, he doesn't care how I live. My God, he doesn't care what I say. and My God, he doesn't care anything about me or you. This is what we're teaching them. And so scripture has this harsh rebuke for us. And he says, if you do this, if you relax it and teach others to do the same, you will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. So maybe you look at that and you say, man, I'm okay with being the least. I'm okay with being the low guy on the totem pole. I I just want to explain something to you. When you get into verse 20, he tells you that if your righteousness doesn't exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, that God's kingdom is no future for you. There is no place. There is no reality in which laziness and not just an adamant, daily, moment-by-moment, passionate pursuit of righteousness exists for the Christian. It It would not have made sense to Jesus for you to walk up to him and say, Look, Jesus... Like I know this is a big deal to you this whole purity thing. But man, Game of Thrones tonight. It's the finale. Like I've got to watch it. And and when nudity comes on the screen, I do this and I ask my wife to tell me when it's over. I ask my friends, my lost friends to tell me when it's over. <laughs> Jesus would not have been okay with that. He would not have been. Game of Thrones maybe isn't isn't the thing you struggle with. It's not the The thing that you find difficult. But in verses 21 through 48, Jesus is going to work his way into your heart from anger to lust to divorce, and he is going to run roughshod over your life. In all the various ways you seek to live out false piety here and out there, he's going to set on fire because he wants to burn your house to the ground. So that you might learn what it looks like to live righteously in his kingdom. It's not my kingdom. It's not your kingdom. You don't set the rules and neither do I. But we seek to live lives as righteous inhabitants and citizens of good King Jesus' kingdom. And we seek to be humble before our good and glorious King. So he flips. He gives us the positive. He says, look, you've got these guys over here, and they're not doing them, and that's some of you. But whoever does them and teaches others to do them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is going at it, and he's looking at it, and he says, look, there are occasions when you go out and you just make a mockery of everything that it is to follow Jesus. And when you do this, you're moving in the vein, you're moving in the likeliness of being the least, of having nothing to do with Jesus effectively. But he turns to the others and he says, look, when you do these things and you're teaching others to do these things, this is what it is to be intimately involved in a relationship with God through the faith in Jesus Christ. And to do this, you receive the moniker, the name, the title of being called great in the kingdom of heaven. So now he moves to the really difficult part of the text. Verse 20. Just imagine this, the people are standing there, so you've got lost people, you've got followers of Jesus, you've got scribes over here and Pharisees down on the right. And so they're all kind of mingling in, they're all kind of getting to know one another, but everybody knows the scribes and the Pharisees. Now our tendency, our proclivity, that what we're given to is to look at them and to say, man, these guys are just a bunch of hacks. They are not that. Scribes at a young age were brought into intense uh, discipleship effectively. And they were raised up over the course of their lives so that at 40, they were finally more or less ordained into this lifestyle of being a scribe. They were excellent in their precision of the law. The Pharisees had divided it into 248 commands and 365 prohibitions. So they understood this and their goal, their intention was to live out each and every one of these in full excellency. And so imagine this morning that that back right-hand corner where Jay is sitting, those are the Pharisees. And that back left-hand corner where Siri and others are sitting, those are the scribes. And I were to ask you, where are the truly holy and super and righteous people? You would point both directions. This is what he's saying. This is what everybody would have recognized. It wasn't that they looked at them. They said, these guys are harsh. These guys are terrible. They would have looked at them and somebody said, how do you define the righteous people? And say, it's the scribes. Anybody else you'd know that's righteous? They say it's the Pharisees. So when Jesus goes in and he says, For truly I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, they just say, Full stop. Full stop. I'm sorry, Jesus. <laughs> I'm what you would call an average man. My parents didn't have me in the GT scribe program. And I like to drink a little so I couldn't be a Pharisee. Like, I'm just sorry. That's just kind of where it is. And so you're telling me that if I'm not in that group and I'm not in that group, I can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so on on, on kind of a base reading and understanding, it certainly seems that that's what Jesus is saying. But look what he writes. He says, I don't want you to be in one of those groups. I want you to be better than either of those groups. Your righteousness has to exceed the level of righteousness of either of those groups. Now, the idea of righteousness, for most of us, we tend to give ourselves a buy. We tend to give ourselves this, this, this kind of, oh, this is what it means when the Bible calls us to a really hard thing. We just say, not me, Jesus, right? This is where you are. This is where most of us are. This is where most of us go. And so many of us in your mind this morning, you're thinking of 2 Corinthians 5.21 or some other verse that says we're not looking to our own righteousness, we're looking to Christ's righteousness. This is not what Jesus is talking about. This is so much worse than that. What Jesus is talking about is obedience. But not just obedience of being nice on the outside not just obedience, of external conformity to the law. It would be hard, but we could do that. It would be difficult. We wouldn't have a ton of friends, but we could do that. We could externally conform ourselves and our lives to the law. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He says it can't just be external. Now, How do we know this? We know this on the basis of what Jesus says in Matthew 5 and 48. So he makes it through this whole idea. He deals with anger. He deals with lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies. He says, you've heard it said, do this, but I'm telling you, be this inside. So he makes it to 548. Everybody's laying on the floor just saying, mercy, mercy, we can't stand it anymore. And Jesus says, you must be perfect. How perfect, Jesus, he says, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, let me set you free. Jesus gets into Matthew 5, 48. He's been describing two characteristics from verse 21 through verse 48. So he describes an external. He says, you've heard it said, you don't go and you don't do this behavior. But I say to you, if you think, if you process internally, then this is sin. And so some have said it's just a simple intensification of the law. But what Jesus has shown us is the process that all of us invariably head down. This kind of the externals of religiosity. The externals of religion. So Jesus is arguing, he says, you've heard it said to do this thing over here. But I'm telling you that's not enough. So when he gets to the end, he says you need to be perfect. He uses this word telos which is better translated, I think, in this case, in this instance, as being complete. So he's making the argument, you've heard it said that you should have external righteousness, and I'm telling you, that's not enough. That's why over and over again, he says, you've heard it said this, but I say unto you, don't just be an external Christian, be an internal Christian as well. So when he gets down here in verse 20, and he says, you need to have a righteousness that far exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is saying, it's not enough to do the right thing. But you've got to crave the right thing. You have to have this whole life righteousness that adheres to the personality, to the nature, to the character of our God. We look at him and we see a picture of what it is to be Righteous. And we follow that righteousness. Can I tell you, this is why Jesus began the Beatitudes in the place that he did. It's because in in, in beginning the Beatitudes where he did, what what is the first thing he told us? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I've been wrestling with this text all week. Knowing that there's this high call of obedience. Lost my temper any number of times. You just kind of quit counting and hope others do as well. I find myself just just struggling with with anger. And what is my quick solution for that? Don't be around people. What you're going to tell you real quick kind of stinks for my job. You guys are always there. Some of you are the source of the anger. Not looking at anybody. This guy's working in my heart. He says, look, it's not enough to affect, it's not enough to change kind of these external variables and, and things coming in and adding pressure on your life. So he's repeatedly showing me over the course of the week, it's not enough to have the external. I have your heart. And our hearts are these, these kind of wicked, vile beasts that we repeatedly try and shield and believe the lies that they are selling us. It doesn't matter. God's not so preoccupied. He doesn't care about that. Or they deserve this behavior. Or, oh, let me just follow this passion this direction or that direction. So he comes to us. He says, you need to be broken you're broken this morning. When you think about your sin, when you think about the failure for this week, I think there are probably a, a couple of approaches that we can take, but let's just talk about two right now. One is to look at the failures of last week and say, "I'm going to do something different next week." I'm just going to structure my week different. I'm going to do something different next week. And I'm just going to put that in the past and I'm just going to let it fall into the rearview mirror. The other the helpful This is say, God, I completely failed this week. Like, I thought I had it. I thought I had it locked up. I thought I was doing really well. I think it's really unfortunate that you let her come to my office. We're going to talk about that later. But I failed. And we recognize that failure saddens the heart of God. It should sadden our heart. Because in God's recreative endeavor, in salvation, he takes your heart out, he puts his heart in its place. And so what makes God sad should make me sad. What causes him to be sad and should cause me to be sad. And I recognize that frequently this is not the case. There are things that I'm just willing to let pass and let slide. But if I'm sensitive to the leading of my God, And if my heart is in his hands, and if his righteousness is my desire, then he keeps holding on, and he keeps pulling me back. And he does it over and over and over again. And so I find myself moving through the Beatitudes. I'm broken. I'm just a broken idiot. I just completely fail multiple times a day, over and over and over again. And I fall on God's grace and his goodness. And I recognize my appetite isn't for righteousness, but I get to verse six and he says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. So my prayer is, God, change my heart, change my appetite. I crave the things that bring me glory, that bring me recognition, that bring me ease. Change it. I beg of you. He gets into the last, he says, now that your heart's beginning to change, and he allows persecution and suffering to come our way. He says, blessed are you when you suffer for righteousness' sake. So he's moving us along this deal, recognizing our impoverishment, calling us to desire the right and the true things, and then allowing us to suffer for these things so many of us end up in the place where Paul is, where Paul was. Paul in Philippians 3, I think it's a great way, great way for us to end. He's kind of going over his vita. He's going over kind of his resume for being excellent in all things. Paul, if he had been here and, 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 and we'd said, who are the truly righteous people? We would have pointed out to him in one of those groups. But he gets into Philippians 3, and he's talking about all the various ways that he was perfect. He said, if anybody else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Of all the prohibitions, of all the commands, Paul says, I had them locked up in space. But, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered and lost of all things and count them as Excrement, in order that I may gain Christ. The way we read the Old Testament, according to Paul in Romans 7, we see the Old Testament as this tutor, this teacher, to show us our depravity and our wickedness, to highlight our need for God's goodness come near to us. And in the midst of this, we find ourselves repeatedly, obediently, seeking to follow Jesus, not making excuses for ourselves, but recognizing as a people, we need his grace to uphold us, to give us the hunger, to give us the thirst, to give us the desire to pursue these things. And in the midst of our pursuits, and in the midst of your pursuits, let me just go ahead and... Offer a spoiler. You're going to fail. You're going to trip. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. And the corrective is not to try harder, but to lean more on God's goodness and on His grace, His righteousness at work in your heart, and trust that He is preparing for you a heart that does better and better and better why because it looks more and more like Jesus every day let me pray for us father god your word is challenging it is overwhelming god I pray for any who are here in this room who have heard these words, who have heard the gospel, that they are a sinner, they have not kept your law perfectly, and they owe a penalty for that, that they would hear the good news that Jesus came, that he lived a perfect and righteous life, that he himself offered up the full payment for their penalty on the cross. In the entering into the grave, he rose again on the third day, overcoming sin and death. And Jesus in his goodness, and Jesus in his grace, calls them to salvation. To respond to the free gift of God, extended to them, forgiveness of sins. So God, would you move in the heart of the unbeliever? And God, would you move in the heart of the wayward? Call them not to increased effort, but call them to a deeper reliance upon Jesus. God, would you join our hearts together with the power of your Holy Spirit moving in this place that we might sing and praise and honor your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.